Hi, I'm Joey Johnson. You're listening to Composer Quest with Charlie McCarran and me and my Cordine. Stick around. As Joey said, I'm your Composer Quest host, Charlie McCarran. Welcome back. I'm excited to share my talk with Joey about how the accordion works, how polka works, and how he got his music into a Yahoo commercial. Joey also shares some stories from playing alongside America's Polka King, Frankie Yankovic. Before we get started, I'll mention that you can download or stream every Composer Quest episode for free at ComposerQuest.com. Feel free to get in touch with me, Charlie at ComposerQuest.com, or find Composer Quest on Facebook or Twitter. Shout out here to a new Composer Quest patron, Jenny Katz Brandoli, an excellent songwriter who you might remember from episode 34. Jenny asked if I would mention her dad, Michael Katz's new site for learning improvising. It's at freescaling.com. He has some video tutorials on there that show you some simple improvising tricks. So thanks again, Jenny, for becoming a patron. If anyone else listening would like to become an official Composer Quest patron, visit patreon.com slash charlie. Now in my conversation with Joey Johnson, we talk about some of Joey's production library music that we couldn't really put into this episode for copyright reasons. So make sure to visit composerquest.com slash joey for links to the music and videos we talk about. Well, Joey, thanks for being here on Composer Quest. Pleasure to be here, Charlie. Yeah. So yeah, you've been doing polka music and accordion playing for how long? Uh, accordion really came to me later in life. I've only really been working with the accordion probably 16 years. But like a lot of people back in the uh, late 60s, my brother came home from his first trip to Vietnam and had a guitar. And you got to be like your brother, you know. And that was my introduction to really getting into popular music. And here I was, I was playing with a band that had an accordion, saxophone, drums, trombone, sometimes cornet with them, and I was rhythm. These guys said, boy, you know what you need is a banjo. And I started playing it with this band. And uh, shortly after that, a guy called me to play a band job with him. And he said, "Uh, listen, are you open on this night in June? I was now 14. I said, yeah, I can do that. Well, I'm playing at the Belray Ballroom with Frankie Yankovic. Now, for those of you who don't know who Frankie Yankovic was... He was America's polka king. He was the first polka musician, actually the only polka musician, to sell a million-selling record. The polka bands that are out there today owe a debt of gratitude for Frank for staying with it when nobody was following that stuff. And uh, he knew how to work that music by taking folk tunes, which polka music was folk music. But he would take the tunes that were of his heritage, Slovenian, or they might be German, they might be Italian, but they would put English lyrics to them. Now when he played a dance, he wasn't just playing for the Slovenians. The Germans could hear their tune, granted with English lyrics behind it sometimes, but he played for everybody, so everybody grew to like him. And now we're into the 70s, and I'm playing my first job with him. And uh, Frank said to me, what are you doing on these dates in September? And I said, I think I have them open. He says, well, I'd like you to play with me in Kansas City, Denver, Albuquerque, and Phoenix. I'm 14. (laughs) I'm in ninth grade. 
I said, well, we'll have to ask my parents. He said, are they here? I said, yeah, they're sitting over there. He said, well, let's go talk with them. They said, yeah, we can, he can probably do that. We'll take him out of school on Thursday, bring him down to the airport, fly to Kansas City, and pick him up on Monday when he flies home. And uh, the reason I'm telling this was because playing with Frank, I was around some tremendous musicians, some tremendous accordionists. And in, in its day, back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, these guys were really looked up to because of what they could do. They were working six, eight jobs a week playing accordion and entertaining. But all things change. The Beatles hit. Nobody wanted to play accordion. They wanted to play guitar. As a side note to that, back in, I think it was 1955, there were 11 accordion conservatories or studios in the Twin Cities giving accordion lessons. Now, there are probably hundreds of other people that taught on their own. These were actual building you know, where you could go and learn to play accordion. One of them in Minneapolis employed 17 full-time accordion teachers. <laughs> it's hard to believe. What did you learn from watching Frankie Yankovic? Did he teach you some things about writing songs? or? You know, I like think that? what I learned was the structure. It all goes back to 16 measure songs. Or 32, if you're in two, which all polkas generally are in a time signature of two. A lot of them would be 16 measures, repeat the 16 measures. They would then go to a bridge. We often called that the kicker. Come back and do the first part again and do the kicker and you were done. Um, different styles have a different formulation. Polish polka music would be based on four. They might play four measures, repeat the four measures, and then they'd do that two more times. Then they would have a bridge that might do something similar. They don't often go quite as long as some of the Slovenian things did. But it always was based on sort of a march tempo, you know, about 120 beats per minute. And it was a way that it resolved in that. Frank's song, of, of course, a lot of them were Slovenian folk songs. You'd hear them played and you'd say, well, it's just, it's a polka. Yeah, but they came from that area. Now, all areas of Europe had polka music. Uh, Scandinavia, uh, even in Britain, they called it the quick step, but it was a polka. It originated in Czechoslovakia, Poland, in that area. It just it's happened. It's kind of weird that, that accordion is a folk instrument, being that it's kind of complex for... Well, the the instruments they played... Uh, let's go back 120, 130, 140 years in Europe, they didn't play the piano accordions that you see today. They played what was called a button box. Mm -hmm. And it was a much smaller instrument to carry. It played in two or three keys. These instruments were what we call diatonic. If you think of a harmonica, when you blow in, it plays one note. When you draw out, it plays another note. Well, the same thing with these accordions. And they didn't play a complete scale. There were some accidentals that you couldn't get. But those were the folk instruments, and they were, they were tuned in a way, when I say tuned, they play more than one reed at a time playing the note, but they were offset in a way that was not what we call musette, but it was a detuning that made them brassy and loud. And uh, you were generally pretty popular that you could be around a house party or another event and play those tunes, or a dance. You know, that was a big part of the social atmosphere back then. So uh, 
come into the 1900s, it was only about 100 years ago that the first piano accordion showed up. And uh, by then they had made chromatic accordions, which had rows of buttons on the right-hand side. They were not diatonic. They were a little bit more advanced instrument, and they had developed the bass section to what is now known as the stradella bass. And that allowed you a whole octave of bass notes as well as chords, major, minor, seventh, and diminished seventh chords just by pushing a button. I owned a recording studio for over 20 years, and I did a lot of productions. I did, now we did do jingles. We did Treasure Island Casino. I did Holiday Station stores, Holiday Plus stores, John Deere, Culligan. We did ads for those things, and sometimes we'd do custom music for different things. I also used production music libraries. Now, what is a production music library? Well, if you go out and say, well, I want to use Katy Perry's song behind my Chevrolet commercial, there's going to be a lot of money exchanged. But if you went to Associated Production Music or any other other big music libraries and said, we're going to do this, what is it going to cost us? It's thousands of dollars less. You're not using a well-known name, but you can find music of a style, of a genre that fits what you want to do. And that's what led me to getting published, was my use of production music libraries. Representatives from libraries would call on me from time to time, and I had met the president and his wife of Sonaton Production Music Library, which is based in Munich, Germany. And uh, they had come through town, took me out to dinner, and we talked a lot about my needs, what music I like to use. I'll never forget saying, well, there's this one composer that I really am impressed with his stuff. His name is Keith Mansfield, and uh, Gerhard said, oh yeah, Keith, he, he makes over a million dollars a year on royalties. Now turn on a radio, you won't hear Keith Mansfield, but this guy does really well <laughs> Just production from... music libraries, royalties, right? Yeah. And I happened to mention one other composer who went with the initial J and the last name Epping. Well, it turned out that was the pen name of the president of the library, and I said, I've always respected his stuff. He does good stuff. And uh, a couple of years after that, I was approached by them to do some American polka music. And as much as we've talked now, polka music came from Europe. There's a couple of tunes that truly are American, and it would be like the Two Fat Polka by Arthur Godfrey. But, you know, it's still kind of based on a sound that comes from Europe. Down south, you've got the Tex-Mex sound. Well, that Texas Mexican style of polka really comes from a German influence down there. Hmm. Even down in South America, it has the European feel in it, even though Argentina, you know, they play a style of polka that's still different, but it still kind of had that European influence is where it came from. And um, I put together a proposal of here's what I would do. Uh, they wanted three songs. I said, I'll make five, because if I'm doing three, I can make five for the same cost. Back in my brain, I'm thinking, hey, it's two more things they got a chance to sell. Mm -hmm. You know, Of course, part of the agreement is they hold all the rights. I'm the writer. We share that. 
but as the publisher, they hold all the rights. So I can perform the music. I can't re-record it. I can't give a score to a band to play. So it's somewhat limited. But if you ever go to the Sonaton Library and look me up, Joey Johnson, and there I am with the Joey Johnson Polka Band. (laughs) Cool. When you say you are the writer and they're the publisher, when the royalties come in, then it's 50-50, right? Um, uh, Depends on how many hands have to go through before it gets to me to, to what I get. I'll use as an example, Yahoo ran this ad, it ran on MTV, and they in turn used music that came out of Associated Production Music or Sonaton, my song, obviously, it comes back through there. So probably it was licensed through APM, Associated Production Music, being that it was done in the United States. So they take half of my half. The publisher always gets his half. Just the way it works. But it does filter back and get to you. Just like a radio station keeps logs of the songs they play, you have to report your usage when you license something. It seems like a good deal for you. I mean, they paid for your production process, and now you don't have to do anything. You just kind of wait for the royalties (laughs) to come in. Yeah, there is that to it. And the agreement is the musicians are paid. This is what you do it for. You have no claim after that. As the writer, I share rights with the publisher. Being that I owned a recording studio, I was able to use that. I guess had I been smarter, I would have built a different cost in for that. But I looked at it and said, well, I'm doing it myself. You know, I can keep my costs down and maybe they'll like me better. (laughs) And in reality, I was working with a very big record company. They're just not what we see today as Sony or any of the other names that you know, but they are a big record company. You're also saying that Sonaton has gotten your music into some cool stuff. (laughs) Well, I mentioned Yahoo Music Downloads, which in the ad, there's a little animated spacecraft that comes over. You got a Britney Spears kind of singer, and uh, this thing comes over and goes, oh, that's cool, and it goes over a rapper, and oh, that's cool, it draws him up into the spaceship goes over a cowboy singer and it draws that cowboy up and then it comes over this little accordion player and it zaps him and smokes him into a pile of dust. (laughs) 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 You know, and then these Yahoo music downloads all you want to hear or something. And of course, the end of it, it goes back into the the accordion tune. (laughs) That tune I should mention, I named after my wife. It was called Dancing Diane. Not because she dances or anything, but I named them after my family. There's uh, one tune called Slammin' Sammy's Par. That's my son. We played a lot of golf together. Emily's Happy Hop. She's my daughter. She's graduating this year with a degree in vocal music. Do you ever regret signing the rights away to these songs? No. Um, I got paid well to do it. I get a BMI check every quarter. Um, Nestle in Switzerland uses some of my tracks every quarter. And what's really funny, Charlie, is I have songs that get used in Asia, in Japan, in South America. And here's my, my absolute coup de grace. This is my swan song. December 20th of 2011. Who can remember what they were doing on that Saturday night? I was on Saturday Night Live. 
Cool. Hey, hold the applause. Keep your seats. <laughs> now, they used one of my tracks in Saturday Night Live on a show called A Very Gilly Christmas, which was Kristen Wiig, you know, her character Gilly. And I didn't see it. I was out gigging somewhere. <laughs> but when I got the BMI report and went, wow, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. I have a good friend who's a tremendous accordionist. And uh, he's spent his life making good music, promoting the accordion. He's even been in, featured in some movies. Well, we were talking about recording and, you know, to produce your own CD is a lot of time and it's a lot of work. Now you've got to sell it. And as an independent musician, what do you do? Well, luckily he travels some, plays, he has them with him, sells them from the stage. So um, your return can take quite a while to get that money back. And the reason I mention Steve is because Steve really does it right, you know, as a polka band. And I was telling him about me getting released almost apologetically because I don't consider myself really an accordionist. But he said, man, you make more money off that than I do off most of my recordings probably. And I said, probably a good chance, you know. I don't have to distribute it. I don't have to try and get it sold through a store. I don't have to travel to sell it. And, and a, a side note of that, my drummer, Greg Traxler, had some songs on an old site called mp3.com. Well, Greg was laying in bed one morning and got a call. They introduced themselves as being from an ad agency in New York City. And they said, well, you have this song on mp3.com called That's My Dog. We'd like to license it for ads for a, I believe it was a pet store, for a year. What would you want for that? And Greg said, well, maybe a couple hundred dollars. <laughs> the guy cleared his throat and said, how's 10 grand sound? <laughs> okay, well, we usually do it for two years. Would it be okay if we did that with a 10% increase on the second year? Greg thought that would be okay. And so you never know where things come from. Mm -hmm. Well, Joey, you brought your accordion in. It would be cool to hear some accordion and right. talk about your Tell you songwriting, composing process. Surely, surely. Getting back to the recordings, I use three different accordions in the recording uh, that's on Sonaton. And accordion makers, when they made these things, they didn't tune them to a 440 true pitch. They tended to tune them up into the 50s, a little bit sharp. The reason was it made the instrument stand out more. Now, when I say a little bit, it might be 14 to 16 cents sharp. If you played with an orchestra, you had to have a 440 tuned box. One of the boxes that I have on there is tuned 440, but you'll hear, uh, particularly in Dancing Diane, it's got a wet sound. Uh, um, for instance, in Dancing Diane, it does something like this. These notes, you can hear that the reeds are detuned. One on that accordion is a little bit sharper, and one is a little bit flat where the actual uh, instrument is tuned. And it's tuned. The bassoon reeds in the bass, which is here, that's a bassoon reed. So that A is right on at 440 in that accordion. But it's also got a set of reeds that's tuned sharp and tuned flat. You hear a French tune. They're often done with a musette sound. So you have a... Mm -hmm. 
Now, this accordion doesn't have musette to it. I'm playing my three middle reeds. Uh, uh, quickly, I'll tell you what the reeds are. Sure. This is a bassoon note, uh, a bassoon reed. If I switch to another setting that gives me uh, uh, one of the middle reeds, I get this. You can hear that that's an octave higher, or here's just one middle clarinet. Here's all three middle clarinet reeds. They're tuned really together. They're the same pitch, but you can hear something different from one to three. And what it is, is where the reeds are located in the accordion and how they reverberate throughout the wood. This accordion, this, is, this would be exactly what Frankie Yankovic played. It's dry-tuned. And by dry-tuned, they're all the same pitch. Um, they match together. But it gives you a, a wonderful full tune, for instance, and... That was Frank's sound. He wasn't sounding European, and Europeans use that, what we call, wet-tuned sound. That's just part of the uh, the accordion lore. I could go on forever <laughs> about that. So, did you say you were working on a new song um, right now? Yeah, there's a blouse music band based out of the St. Paul area called the Bavarian Music Meisters. And uh, by blouse music, they would sound like a parade band. They do have clarinets, but they usually don't have saxophones. You know, they have trumpets and tubas, baritones. You know, it's that mix of sound. And um, I got inspired by yet another German group called Spielmannzug, Minnesota, a German carnival club. And they choose a prince and princess every year. You know, 150 years ago, it was to mock the prince himself in Germany. Now it's just carrying on that tradition and a reason to have fun. But I wrote these parts with that in mind. Part of what they have, now they have the prince, the princess. There's also a part in there that goes into the nar. The nar is the fool. The nar is who awakens carnival every year on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. So I, I, I wrote some parts and I'll play just a little bit of this. I'll give you a feel of this. And I'm I'm working on getting it arranged for the Bavarian Music Meister, so it would be played by a brass band. Then just as a little bridge to get away from that, let's see, I was in... back through the first part again. Now we've brought in the prince, and the prince walks, because it's hollow. Everybody shouts and waves to the prince. So he gets a little... And he's parading and waving to everybody as you hear this.
as I said, the prince goes at his own pace. Alright, the prince has come through. Now we've got the Nar. The Nar kind of leads everybody, and he's who they term, or she, who's who they term the fool. And the Nar is pretty happy and dances through going. that resolve we come back into the intro then back in which ends out the song when you were coming up with those different sections for like the prince and the fool mm -hmm. did you think in terms of different styles of polka or marches or was it all subconscious More the character you take um the princess she's elegant you know So, uh, yeah, it's just that, that imagery in my mind called together those type of things, you know. Mm -hmm. How do you come up with melodies for your songs? I think a lot of times it comes from something you've heard, whether consciously or not, or a rhythm pattern that you've heard. In doing corporate songs, I know that happened a lot. You know, stay away from the dreaded downbeat so that everything isn't feeling plodding when you're writing. And, of course, then we was working with lyrics that had to get a better your best, the future is now, tomorrow, today, capture the spirit, all those kind of themes into something. Whether it was a, uh, a big band sound or a corporation sound or it was trying to be hip, <laughs> which is how I had things put in front of me a lot of times, by an insurance company yet, you know, we, we want to be hip. Gotcha. <laughs> You know, and if, if, if what you would do is if they mentioned some style, some name, well, you would listen to that and glean your ideas from what that sound was and then try to, to create something totally fresh, but still with that sound. I think we're all products of what we've heard. It's very hard to be totally original, and especially when you're making art for money's sake, so to speak. I'm no Beethoven by any means, but it's putting something together that works in the framework of the music or the framework of the time. And yeah. Best of all is if you can get paid for doing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's art. Go out and enjoy it first. And if something happens to be lucky for you, well, you did good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you're having fun performing. Polka you know, uh, and I'm in my 44th year of performing, I guess it is now, and granted, I've moved to the accordion. Uh, I play in a band with my friend Greg Traxler, plays drums. He's played with a lot of great people, from uh, Chuck Berry, you know, different shows. He's played Carnegie Hall, and now he sits behind me. <laughs> but we have a great time together. And then there's a, a guy that's been running around with me since he was about three years old, standing next to me on stages, and helping with sound gear and setting up stuff. And he grew up to be uh, not only the sax player on the recordings on Sonaton, but he's a fine guitar player, uh, my son Sam. And uh, the three of us, uh, Charlie, I'm in the best place I've ever been in my life because we really just enjoy each other and we enjoy what we do. 
it's what music should be, you know, playing with a couple guys you really enjoy and doing music you'll love. And, mm-hmm. Oh, and maybe having a beer or two somewhere in there, too. <laughs> it never hurts. <laughs> well, Joey, I have a challenge that I put out to anyone who comes on the podcast. Um, this podcast episode could use some sort of intro theme. Uh, just a short little snippet that represents Composer Quest. Is there something you could come wow. up with here, do you think? <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm like not sure what it represents, but it's just a little a little bit of something that would be in, in a polka song. Nice. That was the <laughs> quickest anyone's ever done an intro. Awesome. Do you need me to, to give you one with my name in it or something? Well, that'd be kind of cool. All right. Do you... then... Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Joey Johnson. You can find Joey's music at facebook.com slash the Joey Johnson Band. And again, make sure to check out composerquest.com slash Joey to see his Yahoo ad and to hear some of his Sonaton tracks. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, happy composing. We want to be hip. Gotcha.